0: Thank you, Lisa. Kids, yes, you can leave for Sunday school right now. As we read that psalm, boy, I hope some of those phrases just jumped out at you and that you can hold on to them and maybe go back to this psalm after this morning's message, after we, uh, we study God's word, come before him in this way. Who can be compared with the Lord? He rules the raging sea. And that is, that is the truth that we have, that we, that we come to this morning or will come to as we study the seventh chapter of Daniel. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your love for us, for bringing us here this morning. Uh, not simply uh, motivating us uh, to get here this morning uh, on this day, but bringing us to this place where we're wanting to, desiring to worship you as God, as creator, as sovereign over the universe. We know that it was a work of grace in our hearts and lives through the power of your spirit because this is not something that is natural to the natural man. We tend to struggle against you and and look for autonomy and our own authority and all of the rest. But Lord, you have made it clear to us through your word. You've made it clear to us in this life and you made it clear to us in our own personal understanding through a work of grace, through opening our eyes, that you are God and that we need to humble ourselves before you and we need to walk in your footsteps and we just pray that you'd help us. We don't claim to have full understanding of all of that personally and practically but we pray that this this day this time together this time in your word will be another step forward as we seek to grasp who you are and what that means for our lives so teach us through your word lord thank you for your word thank you for its power thank you for its its reality to this life, to the history of this world. And we just pray that you'd lead our time together uh, this morning for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. Dear God, amen. So who would have thought that Daniel in the lion's den is not all about Daniel's deliverance? That's not the focus. And we found that last week as we studied Daniel chapter 6. At least that was the very strong application uh, that I saw as, as we studied through that. And I think the Lord was leading us to that. Just that it wasn't just a religious spectacle, but it highlights the special relationship that we can have with the Lord. And it's like Darius said. He said, this is the living God, the enduring, indestructible, active, he's actively involved In the events of the day. And he knew that because he kept saying this too. This God who you continually serve Daniel. And so the message was loud and clear. It was presented through Daniel's life. But it wasn't about Daniel. It was about God. It was about the fact that he lived with the living God in his daily life. And I thought, wow, what a, what a powerful truth for us, for you and I. That's what everything we want. If, if we know who God is, and we're walking in relationship with him, we want that kind of an impact in the world, something that draws people's attention to, to God. And it's all about living with the living God. You and I learning to live just in his presence on a daily basis. So I hope that we, we don't leave this truth that we studied last week in Babylon several hundred years before Christ came. I hope we can, we can transcribe this, this truth on the calendar today in the places where you and I live and work and that people will go, wow, this God who they continually serve He's the living God. He speaks to what's going on in the world today. He's involved. So that was last week. And it seems this, this week, as we go into Daniel chapter 7, we're turning a corner. And this was the corner I was concerned about. I confess to you at the, uh, at the beginning, I'm not much of a guy like, oh, I love you know prophecy. I, I'm a, a person who... You know, theoretical math was tough for me. I want a tape measure. And I, I mean, if I can't figure it out, I want to be able to count the lines. You know, I want to see something in front of me. I want to be able to hold on to it. But when you come to, to prophecy, it's like, boy, it becomes a little more nebulous at times. It's like indicating things. It's hinting. It's clues. And, and I prefer something I can just hold on to. But I can tell you this. I've been interested and uh, excited to be studying this. You know, it seems like the storyline of Daniel, and this is the picture that came to me this week, this narrative storyline, these, these stories that we, we, we love to tell and that we tell the kids in Sunday school in the first six chapters, they're kind of like those, those quiet tide pools on the beach. We lived in Peru, we lived on the coast, and it wasn't quite as glamorous as you might think as far as tropics. It was, uh, they were mostly dirty beaches, and it was very cold water coming up from the, the Antarctic, and, and it was kind of dirty too. But, you know, the kids loved the tide pools. You go to these nice little quiet pools, and they'd been warmed in the sun, and, you know, the shells, and the little sea urchins, and... And all that sort of thing. And they paddle around. And that's sort of like what these stories are in the initial part of Daniel. Quiet little tide pools with obvious little things. just easy to get into and, and observe what's going on. But then we turn toward the last part. And I'd say it's the churning, muddy waters of the prophetic part of the book. And this analogy works so well. Not simply because this prophecy begins with swirly, muddy, dirty, turbulent waters. That's the image in Daniel's mind. That's how the whole vision begins. But also because if you're studying an ocean shoreline, you know, you can enjoy those little tide pools. But if you really want to know the ocean, you've got to get into the water. And as you go into any any ocean with the waves rolling in, it churns up the silt, and that water is usually fairly dirty at the beginning, and it's kind of hard to navigate, especially for little kids, because, I mean, the waves come in, they knock you over. But as you get in further, the water actually becomes calmer. It becomes clearer. you, You see better, and you understand more about the ocean and that's really what we're talking about when we we get into this this prophetic study um, we can be scared a little bit by the waves but are you ready to plunge in with me this morning to get into these these teachings and i'm not going to say it's it's deeper truths um, you know i don't want to i don't want to belittle any part of the word of God and its application to our lives and, and the, the profoundness of the, the teaching. But sometimes it's, it's a little, you have to work a little harder in certain areas. So I'm, I'm kind of inviting you to go in with me here and I'll tell you, I learned to swim later in life so I was always a good one to teach my kids how to swim because I wasn't assuming that you know, it was going to be easy for them and all that sort of thing. So same thing here. You know, I'm I'm not a big, oh, you know, I just understand all this prophecy stuff. I'm sort of edging my way in. So you're ready to go in together to, to get in and and try and understand a little bit more of what God is trying to communicate to us. And you may be surprised because as we begin in chapter seven, we're not out of our depth. All of us. Who are here who've been here for the the study of the previous part you might remember we have actually done some time in these waters already if you read ahead in chapter 7 like i encouraged you to do and like i always encourage you to do don't be afraid i'm not going to be worried that oh they're they're getting it too soon and i'm not able to surprise them with it There's, There's always more to be seen. And and if you guys have something, you know, where you study the beginning and read it and and you come primed and ready to go, the Lord is always able to teach us more if we're coming with that already, we've already started, you know. So if you've read chapter 7 already, you might have already seen that it connects to chapter 2 of Daniel as well, and the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so Chapter Seven is a great introduction, a good initi- initiation for this prophetic part of the book, because it eases us in. We've already said, "Oh, oh yeah, we understand. We've, we've got a little bit of an idea because chapter seven and you might remember me talking about this, how the, the book is written in two different languages. And chapter seven is the ending of the Aramaic part of the book. So we got these twelve chapters of Daniel. And chapter 1 is in Hebrew, and then chapter 2 begins in Aramaic, the common language of the day. And then chapter 7 is the last, it's 2 to 7 in Aramaic, and then chapter 8 goes on again in Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people. And we might go, well, why is that? Why is there this section in the middle of Daniel that is in Aramaic? But if we look at what is recorded in this section, these stories that highlight God's power and control, and we see this repeated statement that, do you remember this one? That all might know the Most High God rules. And you remember how many times it was Nebuchadnezzar who was saying that? That all might know the Most High God rules. When we see that, we go, it makes sense. It makes sense that this was in Aramaic the common language of the day. Because God's truth or God's purpose is to make truth known. This truth about himself, that he is God. The, the message is there for all who would see, and he he continues to want to communicate that. So, of course, he's going to do this in the common language of the day. Because this message is for everyone. This message is about everyone. He may not give all the details that, that we would like to see and all the answers. But he does communicate that he is God. And he specifically wants his children to know that he has things under control that they're safe. And that's another important thing when we get into a study has to do with prophecy and the end times. You know, we see that even in the New Testament passages. Paul says, after talking about the end times and the rapture specifically, and, you know, we don't know the timing of these things, but things are going to happen, he says. But he says this, comfort one another With these words. Because sometimes I think we get focused on the things are going to happen part of it. And we're not thinking, oh God is in control of those things that are going to happen. And so when those things are happening, we're going, God's moving. And we remember, we're his children. And as we walk in step with him in life, in regular life, it's not that we're going to know everything that's going to happen before it happens, but we're going to have this comfort at least, this, this overwhelming, undergirding comfort that, hey, God's in control. We know what's happening is in his hands because he's already talked about it. You could even see that in Luke 21 where it talks about some pretty terrible things that are going to happen in this world. And the statement is, Lift up your head. That's the the call to Christians. As these things are happening, lift up your head. Redemption is near. So we always have to keep that in mind. What God's purpose is in prophecy. What he's trying to do, how he's trying to encourage us. We think even of Jesus in that very practical uh, prophecy that he was giving to his disciples three times, remember, he told them, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be killed. <laughs> and the disciples are, are, are not getting it. They're refusing to get it. I mean, it's so plain what he's saying. The words are clear, but they're going, yeah, he must mean something else. <laughs> he couldn't mean that. But he gave them that prophecy Three times he told them this is going to happen, and and it didn't change anything in terms of it happened, and it didn't even really change anything at the time because they didn't understand it. But as they went along, the horror of what happened subsided because it started to come together, and they went, Wait a second. He told us this is going to happen. This is part of the plan, He's in control. He knows. He know How could he know? Well, on top of the fact that we knew he's the Messiah, and we saw he had power over, you know, people's diseases, he had power over demons, he had power over the weather, his power over history. He knows. It's part of his plan. And so that's sort of how we, we, we look at this and This is what the Lord is teaching us in this passage. We can be unsettled by a prophetic vision, by uh, looking at, you know, here, thousands of years of history, and it's capsulized into one vision. The total evil intent of man is exposed in this vision. And if you don't find this shocking, maybe it's because we're not thinking about it as much as we should be we're not understanding it but if you are shocked there's no shame in this either we go whoa Daniel went whoa (laughs) you know how when Nebuchadnezzar had the the dream and it says no no it was Belshazzar and it says he was alarmed and his color changed and that's what happens to chameleons. <laughs> you know, when they're scared, they, they kind of blend into whatever's around them so they can hide. And I say, he's like a chameleon. And now Daniel's turn, he becomes like this chameleon because he has this vision and he's alarmed and his color changes. It says twice he was alarmed and it does talk about his color changing. He was shocked by this. You know, the color drains from your face in fear. So don't be, you know, we, we we shouldn't be ashamed if we go, whoa, this is heavy stuff. But we want to work toward this idea of, hey, what is this telling us? What is God trying to communicate with us? Because God's purpose has never been to, to scare people. He wants to teach us. He wants to pull us close. He wants to show his grace and his love. And so what is it we learn in this vision of the ascendancy of the empires? The ancient of days and the anxious of spirit. Well, he wants to tell us that he has everything under control. So let's go through this and there's no way to do this other than reading and making some observations. There'll be some concrete observations in the text there will be some assumptions we make because of the historical record that we have. And then there will be some suspicions that we have. Some, you know, I think this is, is saying this. This seems to be what it's communicating. And so I want to make that clear too. Um, you know, there, there are some things that it's like, well, there's text says it. That's what it says. There are other things that will be going, well, it seems to be saying this. And I don't want to ever... Uh, I guess give the idea that, hey, about these details that aren't spelled out, I know, and I have the final word, but we see, this is what it seems to be saying. So let's read through this first part, the vision, the first part of the vision, up to chapter, or up to verse 8 in chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and a vision of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter and Daniel declared I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirred up, stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another the first was like a lion and he had eagle's wings Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, it was lifted up from the ground, and they did stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, and it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh." And after this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it After this I saw in the night vision and behold a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong It had a great it had great iron teeth it devoured And it broke in pieces, stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Wow. Quite a look, quite a vision, quite a dream. Now maybe you're saying, and I, I've said this before, we can have some weird dreams. Maybe you're saying, oh, that's nothing. You should have seen what I dreamed. But this dream was a, a powerful dream. It was a, a violent dream, and it was a dream that was sent from God. It was a dream that God was communicating to Daniel things about the future. And I think it's important that we see at the beginning here is talking about the time of Belshazzar. And you remember who Belshazzar was. He was the, the final Babylonian king. He was a great, great, great grandson of, of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a co-regent with his father Nabonidus. And he was that punk I call him a punk partial king. You know, remember the guy who had the big party? You know, a thousand people, and it says he was going to drink before them. And you think of that time period. And why would, what's God doing here? Why is he communicating then? But you know, that would have been a time of great instability. A guy like Daniel, who'd been a part of leading the kingdom, who's going, you know, hey, this is the way we should go. And all of a sudden, he's out of the picture politically. Remember, Belshazzar didn't even know who Daniel was. And we start to think, this is a time when Daniel, out of the picture politically, we don't know where he was, but probably was feeling like, wow, things are unstable. This isn't good. This isn't a good time. And isn't it these times where we start looking to God for hope and help. When things around us are falling apart and disintegrating, we're going, okay, God, we want to hear from you now. And you know, God is gracious. God is a father. And when we desire to hear from him, when we want him to come close, he's not a God who sort of says, no, you go this, you know, on your own. I don't really care. I'll let you flounder here. No, usually... Well, we reach out to God, when we do reach out to God, he's ready to come close. And so in this unstable time, uh, a time when, you know, we could say, well, Daniel doesn't show up in the history, um, God's still communicating to his, his man in, in Babylon. And so he gives him this, this vision. He encourages him. He encourages him. Letting him know, you know what? You may not be a part of what's going on politically right now. But you're still a part of my plan. And, and here's, here's a little information. And so we start out this vision. or Daniel's dream begins with the sea. And the Jewish people always had this understanding that the sea was bad. <laughs> okay? They weren't people of the sea. The Philistines were the people of the sea. But the Jews, they kind of look at the ocean as, wow, what a mess. (laughs) You know, don't go there. We don't understand it. It's just kind of roiling and turbulent and muddy. and, And so it was the perfect backdrop here for his dream of four kings. Four kings that really connected to the four kingdoms they corresponded with the four kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. The statue, the four medals, the four empires of the world. The gold began with Babylon, right? The silver, this part here, Medo-Persia. Then we move on to Greece. Down here, the gold, silver, bronze, and then we move into the iron legs that go down into the muddy toes, and you know, iron mixed with clay. It says, and so we, and that's Rome. And here we're given, uh, or Daniel's given this vision of four kings, four emperors, so four empires. Here we have the nature of the emperors, the emperors of these kingdoms. And you know, it's interesting. This is the character of human rule without God. This is what happens when we're confronted by God and we refuse God. We say, no, I'm going to do things my way. I don't want God involved in my life. And so it's not just a a picture of, you know, what happens at this level of empires and kingdoms. But it's really a picture, an image of what happens in our own lives for us personally. The less God's involved, the more beast-like our life, the more animal-like we are. You know, and it's kind of funny because you think of it this way, We think, you know, people want to be God. But when they refuse to have God over them, they become more like an animal. And that is this mentality that we see in the world today. This mentality that you and I struggle with. I want to do what I want in my way. Remember we talked about it in Genesis, living by our instincts instead of as image bearers of God. And so as we think, I want to be God, we become more like animals. We act on on basic instinct. And we see that in our world today. Rather than saying, oh no, this is where I fit in. I am a creature, created by God. And as we live in relationship with God, it elevates us, doesn't it? God works through us. (laughs) Our life changes in some pretty simple, pretty basic ways. But God transforms us to bring us up as we accept our part as his creature, our position. But when we say I'm God, things go in the other direction. And so we start out with the first beast and it's a lion. Well, the first empire empire, that gold head. And God said, through Daniel, that's Babylon. And we think about it, the emperor. Nebuchadnezzar, majestic like a lion. Wings, rose above. The first great empire. And you know something, as I was reading through this, I thought it curious because this beast, this lion with the wings that rose above all other nations. It's the only beast that we see something positive happening. The wings fall off, right? He rises up onto his feet and he has the mind of a man. And I thought, is this it? Is this the, the transformation we saw in Nebuchadnezzar as he was humbled by God? And God said, hmm, you want to be God? Here's what happens. And he was crawling around on the ground. Insane. Like an animal. But. God restored him. And so this is the only beast of these four. That we see this. Where he, he comes. He begins a beast. A powerful beast. But then he does better. <laughs> he becomes like a man. That is the calling of God. On our lives. All of us begin as beasts. <laughs> we just it's easy to believe when you see a little baby come out and he starts screaming well wants things away, he wants them and and then but God calls us to humble ourselves before him and to understand that he is God and think like a man. The man he created us, the woman he created us to be. And so that's the first beast. The second one, and we we saw what happened, you know, Medo-Persia takes over. We we studied that uh, the with, with Belshazzar when we were talking about him, but with this Medo-Persian Empire, and it was a lopsided bear. And someone made the, the inference that we've got two nations that were joined together. The Persian Empire was much greater than the Medo-Persian Empire. But they were joined together. The lopsided bear. One side bigger than the other. And you know what? You think, how would there, why wouldn't Persia just... But then when we talked about this, you remember there was like a marriage between the two empires. And that's usually how empires got stuck together. And, And it worked because, well, we're family now. And so we've got this lopsided bear with ribs in his mouth, and don't get excited, there's nothing about barbecue going on here. This is uh, probably, I mean, you think of it, the bear comes in and rips the prey away from someone else, right? Medo-Persia just come in and they stole the kingdom. That's the image I get, that's what I'm, I think is being inferred here. And so then we move on from this bear that steals power to a leopard. And Greece is the next empire, the bronze Waste, And this empire was characterized by speed and swiftness. That was the nature of the Greece dynasty. It came quick and it ended quickly too. You think of it—a leopard. That's pretty quick, but this leopard had four wings. It was a turbo-powered leopard. And if you look at the Gre- the Grecian Empire, it's fascinating because Alexander the Great. I don't know if you've heard the name. You remember about him? He was a young man who decided, "I want to rule the world." And by age thirty-three, he ruled the world. And then he died. And as he died, I guess he he said, give the nation to the strong. And they interpreted that as his four generals. And so his kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, was divided up into four sections. Wait a second. How many heads did that leopard have? Four heads. Seems to make sense. From history, the history we have now. And then we move on to this beast, this fourth beast. And it's kind of interesting, you know, Rome uh, would seem the last beast. It's not even tame enough to be described in terms of a well-known wild animal. It's just this beast, this this monster, something that came crawling out of the black lagoon, you know, sort of thing. We, We don't get an image, I mean... We can kind of control an image in our mind, but we don't have that. It's just this monster. And it seems to be worse than all the rest. And so we we think about it, and this vicious monster with iron teeth, we can really see the marching columns of armor-clad Roman legions As rows of teeth that crunch and conquer and control the world. And you know, we think back to the the image in Daniel chapter 2. And it's kind of interesting because we look at it as being the fourth. And we think, well, you know, it was kind of pale in terms of the golden head. And now we're down to iron and then iron mixed with clay for the feet, the weak the weakest link sort of thing in the empires. But you know, in that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, that was kind of like man's view of the four empires. Oh, this is the greatest, the most powerful, and then this is the least great. But you know, in this image that Daniel gets, it's more God's perspective on how bad these emperors are how bad these empires are and it's like each one seems to get progressively worse until we're left with this final image the 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 beast the fourth beast not just muddy toes but 10 muddy toes but there are 10 horns and horns throughout scripture signify strength, and it makes sense, you know, you think of the beasts, the leaders of this time. I don't know who those 10 are exactly, they talk about 10 future kings, um, they were always watching in the, the European uh, community for, for 10 leaders, and that may be where they're going to rise, but we, we think of some of the leaders in this time period, this Roman time period and this diluted Roman time period that we still live in. Remember we talked about how many uh, of the things that we're involved in, even just time and calendar and all that sort of thing. It, it, it's all Roman. It's Roman time that we're living according to. The names of our months uh, and days reflect Rome. And we think of some of the leaders of this time. We think of people like Nero, or Stalin, or Hitler, or Mao. And we think of of the leaders who were vicious and bloody and crushed and conquered. But there's going to be one that rises above all the rest, crushes three others, and he is the model of controlling leadership. The horn with the eyes and the mouth. He sees all and says all. We look at this vision to this point that Daniel has had. And we think what a fascinating fascinating way to express the general movements of political history. The key leaders in this story that God has written. But the thing that we need to remember is that when Daniel received this vision, he was living at the tail end of the first empire, the time of, of Belshazzar. And so we can look back on this and we can say, oh, this makes sense. Here's what's going on. This is what happened historically. But we need to remember that for Daniel, for the world at this time, this was all future. And these were, this symbolic vision was full of prophetic clues. And it's not that we, oh, now we understand all of these clues perfectly. But the first and most important thing that we learn here is that God knew beforehand how all of this was going to play out. I mean, it needs to, to knock our socks off, that here God is, before all of these things happen, spelling out in a, in a, in kind of a muted, mystical, or mysterious way, this is what's going to happen. And it happened. It happened in the way he said it would happen. So much so that, you know, there are many, uh, they call them liberal scholars, who say, you know what, Daniel wasn't written in the time of Daniel. Daniel. And the reason, their main reason for saying that is, well, the prophecy is too accurate. This had to happen in the time, the intertestamental period, after the Old Testament, before the New Testament. It was during the Maccabean time. It was the time where Antiochus comes in and he conquers in, in Jerusalem. And it was somebody who was writing about everything that had happened to this point in a mystical sort of way. And the whole idea, and it's such a weird thing, it's a, a, way, of, <laughs> it's a way of interpreting Scripture that, well, if it's, there, there's anything miraculous in it, anything that is something that God would communicate to us in a, in a supernatural way, it can't be real. It's got to be something that was written about after the fact. And so they kind of dismiss Daniel and go, no, no, that was written historically, much later time period. It wasn't written in the time of Daniel. And we need to kind of settle down into this and get a clear understanding that no, this was written by Daniel. This was written in his time. And this needs to overwhelm us that God is here talking about history before it happens. And we need to get this in our mind that God has things under control. As terrible as these things may be, as terrible as some of our experiences are in our personal lives, as terrible as some of the the things are in the life of this world globally, God understands. God knows what's going on. This is his history. He's working through it. We just need to trust in him. And as we look at what he says is going on, I want us to understand that this ascendancy of the empires has this anarchical tone to it. Anarchy. It's like these guys are, are beasts. They're monsters. And you know, generally when we think of anarchy, we think about somebody standing up to Rebelling against the government, right? But here we get these these governments, empires of the world, and they're presented with this rebellious, vicious tone. Anarchy. Against who? The true authority? The true government of this world. And it sort of adjusts our perspective on who's in control, who should be in control, who it is that we are to be honoring and obeying as we live in this life, whether we're talking about us as individuals, in our, our little lives, in this, this world, or the world in general, the empires, the nations, in these tremendous movements of history. These empires, these emperors were beasts shaking their fists in the face of God going, no, no, we are the all-powerful ones. We will do whatever we want. And this is really the essence of natural human governments. Governments that have not recognized God Governments that do not put him in his proper place and give him his true authority. It's anarchy. Well, let's read on. As we go on in this, this vision that Daniel's having, we jump back into verse 9 and starts a new movement in the vision. And Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair, the hair of his head, was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning. A stream of fire issued, and it came out before him. A thousand, thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw the night visions. Well, the main character in this next part of the dream is, of course, the Ancient of Days. And what happens in this section corresponds to Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. You remember what happened? There was the image, the four metals, it was standing there, and then out of nowhere, a rock not made of the things of this earth came and hit the feet of that image. What happened? Did the image, the feet broke apart and it tipped over? No, the thing was turned to dust. It blew apart. Well, this that we just read is an expanded version of the rock. And you know, we sort of have this idea, there's this inanimate rock that comes in and takes out, takes out the statue. But here we understand what's going on behind the scenes. We've got the Ancient of Days. God, seated on the throne, placed, these, these thrones that are placed out there, we see it's order. There's an order, there's a, God's control over what is going on in this situation. And it talks about God. He's dressed in white. He's got white hair. Let's be careful of this image because I think sometimes we get this idea of, oh, God's an old man. <laughs> no, God's not an old man. He's the Ancient of Days, which means he's been for always, forever. It doesn't mean he's, he's going gray. He's getting a little peaked. He's weak. He's not. No, God is God. And anything that's white has to do with purity and we know that in the scripture the the white hair is is a sign supposed to be of wisdom this is God he's the one who knows what's going on he's the one who is, is over all things and in control of all things we read of fire fire coming out from him fire coming out from the throne there's fire and more fire And you think, what an appropriate image in terms of authority and power when we think of of what happened when Nebuchadnezzar was wanting people to worship his image. You don't worship the image, you go into the fire. Fire, judgment, the king's power and control of the people. Well, God can do fire better than anybody else. And so this, this image we have of God being in control, the God who can and will judge. And who do we see him judging? Well, before we get to that, he sits in the court of judgment. That's a phrase that's going to be mentioned later on in the chapter as well. The court sat in judgment. The books were open God is going to analyze what's going on, and he's going to judge with absolute authority. He has thousands of people, millions of people around him, serving him, millions standing before him. And this apex beast, this beast which is the culmination of all the evil of human government, the anarchy, we we get to him in verses 11 and 12, and it says this beast of beasts. This beast that is worse, worse than all the beasts is burned. He's judged. He's snuffed out. And we start to consider what has been, what we have seen in the beginning of the, the, the vision, the different beasts, the emperors over the empires that were in control of this world, they had and it only says it for the the third one I think, Greece, they had dominion they had power they had control a certain amount of control, they had dominion but now that dominion, that power is taken away it says for the three previous beasts, that their dominion was prolonged for a time. They were given a season, a season of power. We see the rise and the fall of these empires over centuries. But when it came to the final beast, the final empire, the final emperor, that will be the greatest most terrible leader that there has been in this world God deals with him clearly, concisely it will be understood that God has judged that the God who has been in control, who has always been sitting on the throne the God who is able to judge that God will rule against the anarchy of human government. And how does he do that? Well, we look in verse 13 and 14. Where does the dominion go? When God takes their dominion away, he gives it to somebody else. And it says, the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. Through prophecy, they talk about the Son of Man. It was a term that was used for the Messiah. And in fact, when Jesus came into this world, they say it was his favorite statement, his favorite name for himself. And I sort of always figured it because it was such a novel thing for him. He'd always been the Son of God. So when he was hanging out here with us in a human body, He referred to himself as the Son of Man. I thought that must have been a curious, I mean, if anything can be curious for God. But he was the Son of Man. And it says the Son of Man was presented here, presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him, verse 14, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All people, nations, languages will serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion. It will never pass away. And no one will destroy his kingdom. Think about the message that we're supposed to be getting out of this. And I understand that we're not going to be able to finish this chapter today. So for those of you who are worrying about that and not about the beasts and all the other imagery, you thought that was a little scarier. I'm going I'm to wrap this up. I'm going to cut this short. But I want to kind of draw it together with this message that we're getting, this initial message, the basic message of this vision that God was giving to Daniel, that Daniel was presenting in Aramaic to the rest of the world this message that we should be getting from God. As we read this and study this and see what's being said, we we need to recognize God is saying, I know what's going on. Not just a knowledge of, but we always talk about foreknowledge. This is all part of God's plan, all part of what he's working with. He knows what's going on. I know what's going on. I've got things under control. And this is what it means. This is what it means. And I know we have this third part that you are wanting to get to today. The truth about the anxious spirit. We've looked at the truth of the ascendancy of the empires. The truth about the ancient of days, his control. Then there's the truth about the anxious of spirit. Daniel is the anxious of spirit. He represents us in terms of we're worried about, you know, how's this all going to play out? And uh, how am I involved in this? And what should we be thinking? What should we be doing? You're going to have to wait till next week to get all of that. But just suffice for, for right now. We know that God knows what's going on. He's got this under control. That the dominion That was in the hands of anarchical governments. Has been placed in the hands of the Son of Man. You know I referenced a a passage in Luke 21 earlier. Where Jesus talks about the end times. And all that's going to take place. And he says now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The verse before that says this. He says, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. With dominion. Isn't that kind of neat how in the prophetic past, we see Daniel talking about the Son of Man, God giving him a vision about the Son of Man and the salvation or the dominion, the power that's, that's placed in his hands. And here we have Jesus talking about himself, his second coming, referring to himself as the Son of Man once again. Coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Lift up your heads. Redemption's near. Put all those things in perspective, the things that we understand to be signs of the end of the world, the the troubles, the wars, the rumors of wars, because they're not as big. They're only things that have to do with human government. They're not as big as the government that is over this world for forever. Forever. That is found in this son of man. If you just turn back a page. In Luke chapter 18. I also reference this. Jesus foretelling his death. A third time it says. In Luke 18. And this is sort of what leads us into. Where we're going to be going in the next part of our service. It says in verse 31 of Luke chapter 18 and taking the 12 he said see we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. Dominion and power and glory will be put in his hands. Doesn't seem so clean as that what he says next for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise but they understood none of these things this saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said And as I thought of how to conclude this message in the middle of a sermon, and leading us to where we're going, I just thought of one word, this word grasp. Do we grasp what was going on in a little greater way in this prophecy in terms of the empires of the world and what? God said it was going to happen. Do we grasp the fact that God is in control? He has always been sitting on the throne and that he is guiding things to a perfect conclusion. Do we grasp the fact that it leads us right to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man? the one who has power and dominion, who, who won that place of power in a practical way through dying on the cross for our sin, fulfilling the will of the Father, being perfectly obedient. There was no anarchy in his bones when he came into this world. He was the Son of Man. He was God's choice. He served the Father perfectly. And so he became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He's the one who not only dealt with the beasts of human leadership, but he also dealt with the beasts, (laughs) us, you and me, and our sinfulness and our instinctual behavior just to take care of ourselves and do what we want. He brought us face to face with our sin. And he became the sacrifice that paid for our sin on the cross. Every time I come to to communion, and I, I go, do I grasp this? And I have to be honest. Not completely. We struggle to. We struggle to understand exactly what this means. But I pray that as we go into this part of our service and as we walk through this and work through this again with the Lord, with his spirit working in our hearts, with the backdrop of this passage we've just studied, I hope that we can grasp a little more what was accomplished for us by this God who sits on the throne. This God who came into the world to die for us. Father, help us. Help us to to honor you as we come before you, to worship you in spirit and truth. To recognize, to confess, to admit that yes, we are sinners and that we tend toward this natural sort of human behavior, this beast-like behavior. But Lord, you have offered us salvation out of that through Jesus Christ your man the son of man to whom you gave dominion and power and glory and honor thank you for the cross thank you for salvation help us Lord as we continue to worship you through this time help us to understand more clearly it's what it is that you have done for us, what you've been doing through history and time, and what you will continue to do as we continue to humble ourselves before you and submit our lives into your hands. Amen.